Hey everybody, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. Grab a seat. We are going to get started. Um, welcome to Theology on Tap. If this is your first time, we're so glad you're here. My name is Justin. This is my good friend Brian. And uh, so the way this kind of works, if this is your first time, uh, we will we have a conversation. And this started about a year ago where we just decided, hey, it'd be really fun to talk about important things mm -hmm. together in a bar uh, and look funny in our collars and people can kind of think what they will. But uh, people thought it was fun. And so it's been going now. Uh, we do it every other Tuesday. And what is important are these little things around the room. You'll see these sheets. You can join our email list at the bottom by filling out that QR code. But the way this evening works is at any point, you can scan that top QR code and ask any question whatsoever. And it'll be submitted anonymously. And we've got um, Ian, I believe. Ian the Hurricane, uh, who, no, oh, that was a dad joke. Um, who's going to be moderating all the questions tonight that come in. So uh, it doesn't have to relate to anything that we're going to talk about tonight. Just feel free to, to ask away. And if you see a question on there that you do like, you can like that. And we'll try to get the ones that are most liked, I guess. But um, What we're going to talk about tonight, so if you remember, we're, we're thrilled to be back here at Henry's. Uh, it was a little chaotic where two weeks ago, we found out the plumbing, they had an issue here. So last minute we had to really pull some things together and we had it right around the street at St. Philip's. And it, some very special candles. It was very aromatic. It was wonderful. Um, I don't remember all the candles, but it was, it was an interesting smell. It's, it was great. Um, and you, there's free parking as always over in the St. Philip's lot on the corner of Church in Cumberland in case that's a thing, but uh, you can always park there. Uh, but we're really glad to be back here at Henry's, Clark, who's the man, is back there. He's always helping us out. Uh, but tonight we, uh, sorry, that's what I was saying. So last time we were talking about uh, the real Jesus for real life. And we looked at some of the things, sometimes we can think about Jesus in the way that we want to think about Jesus. And I talked about like the Ricky Bobby Talladega Nights thing where he's like, I like to think of Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt or like little baby Jesus. And sometimes we can kind of do that in our own lives as opposed to looking at what Jesus actually said. <clears throat> so we looked at this phrase where Je <clears throat> excuse me. You're Jesus right talked there. about, yeah, what he said was you have to hate your father, mother, brothers, sisters, spouse, husband, wife in order to be my disciple. And we tried to explain what in the world he meant there. Tonight we're going to look at another thing that Jesus said that is probably one of the most misunderstood uh verses in the entire Bible, most, most quoted. but one of the most quoted, yeah. uh, maybe God is love is one, but this other one, judge not lest you be judged. Uh, get, show a hand. You've probably heard that verse before, judge not lest you be judged. Yeah, so Jesus talked about that. Tonight we're going to explain what does that mean and how does that apply to our lives? And so, Brian, what does, before we say what does it mean, what does that not mean? Judge not lest ye be judged. Well, there are lots of things that it doesn't mean. And I want to just give a little plug here for whenever you are trying to figure out what a Bible verse means, one of the best things you can do is read the other Bible verses that are around it. And if you remember from English class, if you were awake in English class, you probably heard people talking about context is important. So judge not. Um, is in the seventh chapter of Matthew. Matthew 5 through 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. 
um, which I just want to also give a plug for the Sermon on the Mount. If you've never read the Sermon on the Mount, please do. It will take you maybe 15 minutes to read the whole thing. Um, Gandhi, how many of you have heard of Gandhi? Yes, okay. Um, Gandhi was not a Christian. Uh, very big in India and Indian politics. He said he thought the Sermon on the Mount was the most sublime teaching in the history of the human race. So the judge not comes in that. And what it actually uh, means is unpacked when you get to the next verse, um, when Jesus starts talking about with, that with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. And then there's the whole part about uh, why do you try to remove the speck from your brother's eye when there's a log in your own eye. And then he talks about remove the log from your eye, and then you can see clearly to deal with the speck in your brother's eye. And a lot of people miss that part because it doesn't say remove the log from your own eye and then just go on. The speck is still in your brother's eye and you're supposed to deal with it. So I would submit that this whole passage about judging is actually all about what does it mean to love someone? And how do we love them? And how do we love well in the way that Jesus talks about? And one of the best places to go for that, in my opinion, is Romans 12. Um, Romans 12 also talks about judging, but it talks about judging yourself first. It talks about judge yourself with sober judgment. Um, but then it immediately shifts to love. And it says, let love be genuine. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. And I think that is such a great way of thinking about how to love people, even people that maybe are difficult to love, that there may be things that are evil or that are wrong in that person's life that you don't have to approve of, but you need to cling to what's good in that person and love them and be committed to loving them despite those other things. Yeah. Yeah, that's helpful. So um, what I got from a lot of what you just said was the importance of looking at all of the Bible. You can't just pick and choose something out of here because you can make anything say what, whatever you kind of want. So the, the context well, you know, the is The Bible really says that uh, there is no God. Oh, yeah, yeah. It says there is no God. That's true. Now, of course, the first part of that verse says the fool says in his heart there is no God. Uh, but if that you pull it out of context, like yeah. There you are. That's right. That's a yeah. great example of it. And so, uh, again, I would add on to that. I think what it doesn't mean is that we never make evaluations or distinctions. Like if you, and bringing in the context, it does kind of make sense of that, um, because on the one hand, you see Romans thirteen right after Romans twelve, mm -hmm. you, you see that we're still supposed to abide by the distinctions of the law, like what the both the civil law and also the church law that we have. Um, there is the law of God that we're supposed to follow. And and there's right and there's wrong. That's right. And yeah. it's not saying that. And also, in, in Jesus himself, in the very little bit there, he says right after, and I mean, you alluded to the speck out of your own eye, take it out, the speck out of your own eye before you remove the log in the, or sorry, the log, the log in your in own your eye, eye before the speck in the other person. Now, would you just visualize that? Can you imagine... Let's say Justin's got a speck in his eye, fly my and eye. I've got a giant log in my eye, and I decide I'm going to try to get the speck out. What's going to happen? 
I'm gonna clobber you with the log. <laughs> you know, it's not it's not gonna end well for either of us. Yeah. It's a it's a great visual. Um, but he also talks about in verse six of Matthew seven, don't give dogs what is holy and don't throw your pearls before swine. That's pretty serious language. Elsewhere in the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about hypocrites. So Jesus clearly is making distinctions uh, about what is right, what is wrong. He expects us to understand who dogs are, who hypocrites are, who pigs are, right? Um, so it can't mean you don't have any distinctions or evaluations. Uh, and that's really, really important, I think. So given that in mind, what does this verse mean and why is it important today? Well, I think it means a couple of things. Um, Jesus, as you were just alluding to, one of the things that Jesus calls out more than anything else is hypocrites. And um, hypocrite is a really interesting word. It comes from the Greek. Uh, and I don't know how many of y'all ever studied Greek drama like Oedipus Rex or Antigone or anything like that. But in Greek plays, they would be in these big amphitheaters. And the way you knew which character somebody was is they would hold this giant mask in front of them that was painted with the character's face. And these masks were like shields that they would hold up in front of them. And that is actually the word Hippocrates, is that mask that you hold up. It is trying to act like you are someone that you are not. And so I think part of this whole idea of not judging is to realize that we are all sinners, um, that we are, as one theologian put it, that we are all beggars trying to show other beggars where the bread is, which is at the foot of the cross, and that we don't have any business going around trying to be superior to other people and saying um, from a position of pride and looking down on others that I'm better than you. And that kind of judging Jesus is definitely saying, no, do not do that. And what he is saying is the first judging that we need to do is that we need to look at ourselves and that we, the standard that we look at ourselves by is what we're called to by the word of God. And that when we um, examine ourselves in that way, then that should lead us to a profound humility. But it should also lead us to a deep love for others. And it is not loving to people um, to not speak the truth. But the book of Ephesians tells us uh, that one of the things we as Christians are called to do is to speak the truth in love. And I think where our culture gets confused is that we don't understand that those two things have to be wed together. That we think we can be all love, and that is all good. You know, it's like that song that was just on the REM, I am Superman, I can do anything. Um, if your friend is with you and you go up to St. Philip's steeple and your friend says, I can do anything, I can jump off this balcony and fly to Waterfront Park, um, it is not going to be loving for you to say, go for it. Um, you know, it is, that's not loving. You've got to speak the truth, but you've got to do it in a loving way. Um, but on the other hand, just speaking pure truth without any love or any concern or any framing to help someone be able to receive it, that is not helpful either. Yeah. 
That's such a that's a great illustration um, because we often think what love is is just affirming whatever one's own choice is. Like the highest value in our society is what uh, our own freedom and individual choice. That's what we in the West at least prize above all else. It's not the same in all parts of the world, by the way, but at least here in our culture, that is the highest value is individual freedom. So to love means you never, ever, ever tell another person what they should be doing, which is why this verse, don't judge, is often taken the way that it is. But you're right, it's, a, it's about loving people well, and I think we know this intuitively. Like We know that we can't like it's impossible to never draw any distinctions ever like imagine the world that always affirmed everything about everyone at all times just imagine what that would be like so we know there's got to be some distinction somewhere and we know that there is some sort of absolute truth that we have to cling to right and i would add on to what this verse means like what you just said in addition to uh you know taking the log out of our own eyes so we have to first be at least uh just as or maybe more self-critical before we're critical of anyone else and there's plenty of places in the bible it's like if you're going to correct somebody first you need to correct yourself but i think it's also uh talking about in verse two the judgment you pronounce will be judged you will be judged and with the measure you use it will be measured to you and so the importance of having equal measurements equal weights in how you judge other people that you would want others that you're going to judge others the way that you would want to be judged yourself yeah that's a really important point how do you see that playing out practically maybe in our world today i think one of the most important things about that is to see each person as an individual and not to see people as categories or classes or whatever it might be one of the things that's so beautiful in the old testament if you look at the story of when they were trying to find a king to succeed um, King Saul, and the prophet Samuel goes to David's house because he's been told one of David's sons is going to be the king. And he goes through and like all these different sons, like the tall ones, the cool ones, um, and God says, "No, I'm not that one, not that one." And um, eventually, he chooses David. And at the end of the verse, it talks about that man looks on the outside, but God looks at the heart. And I think that is so important. We live in a culture where we are so quick to judge based on externals, um, what labels we put on different people. And as Christians, we believe that each person is uniquely created in the image of God and is endowed with gifts that are amazing gifts that can be used um, in God's service that will help change the world um, if they're encouraged to use those gifts. And we tend to put people in boxes, we put them in packages, we put them in labels, and that is so not the way that Jesus dealt with people. When you read through a gospel, it's just astounding to look at the way that Jesus deals with people, whether they're the highest in society or the lowest of the low, and he just meets them where they are and looks for God's image in them. And I think that the more that we lean into that, we are starting to understand what this verse is about. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the polarization, the tribalism, the internet cancel culture, all of that stuff, right, is in a, we're in a day and age where we really do need this verse and what Jesus is actually teaching, that um, we need to be the kind of people that are quick to hear something said of us and admit 
when we're wrong, to have our minds be able to be changed. I think that was one of the things I remember talking to somebody uh, in doing college ministry, and it's like, when was the last time that your mind was actually changed? And I think that's a really important thing. Are we are we soft enough as Christians to be able to recognize when we're when we're wrong and to admit that and to to seek to to live uh, differently and extend forgiveness, receive forgiveness, all of that. You know, the Bible talks about the, the, the church, the, the people of God, are a family. And in any family, you're going to have sin. You're going to have conflict, right, inside of that. And we, we need to be the kinds of people who are quick to own our, our faults and own our sin, to extend forgiveness, right? This is what love really is. It's, it's based in the truth, and yet it's quick to take the initiative to extend forgiveness, to hear the intent of other people and to be sensitive of that, um, but to acknowledge what is actually true as well. Yes. And I think the, the whole self-sacrificial aspect of that is so important because Jesus is the model of what it means to love. And Jesus' whole life from his incarnation right through his death on the cross models that for us. And Jesus says um, in the Gospel of John, Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And that's part of the reason that I think, um, you know, Lord of the Rings was going to come up somewhere. (laughs) Um, But one of the reasons it resonates so much is you see particularly Frodo being so incredibly self-sacrificial, taking on this role of carrying this ring and trying to destroy this ring, um, not because it's for him the issue, but because he knows that that is what is going to help everyone else. And so um, so often we flip that the other way around, and if something's not going to benefit us directly, um, we're not interested. And that's the way our culture is wired. And that's why Christianity is so radical and so amazing, because it's the opposite mm-hmm. of that. What, um, what would you say to somebody who maybe acknowledges that they are quick to make bad assumptions in people, that they, they're not quick to hear all sides, that they recognize their own judgmentalism. What would you say to somebody like that who wants to grow in, um, in being less judgmental? I would say that is a great first step, is um, realizing that because all of us are like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think part of what is important in that is to pray um, particularly if you find yourself judging other people, um, even people that you just like see in the street, pray for those people. Train yourself to be in the habit of praying for people. And um, it is hard to keep looking down on people that you're praying for on a regular basis. So I think prayer is a huge part. I think another part that is really huge is to do some study, maybe even some deep Bible study on the whole idea of the image of God and what that means. Um, because we live in a culture that you know, we hear, and I don't want to go off on a thing about animal rights, but we hear humans are just animals. Well, humans are, from a scriptural standpoint, humans are not just animals. Humans are the only ones that are made in the image of God. And so much of the, the zeitgeist and the philosophy of our culture is that humans are expendable, they don't really matter, and um, you're just another brick in the wall, basically. And trying to have an understanding of the uniqueness of the image of God in each person um, will really give you pause. If you start thinking about, I'm judging 
what God has made, um, that can really give you pause and help you to slow down with that. Yeah, the importance of taking each person uniquely in the image of God and what you said about external appearances is so critical. And so uh, having gratitude, uh, praying for those, you know, like you're saying, I would also encourage maybe just a social media fast is probably because I think one of the things I've, I see this in myself, the anger and bitterness and quick to like judge others um, happens when I spend more time on the social media or just Twitter or whatever uh, is out there. And uh, I, I think encouraging, uh, it would be, I would encourage probably to, to try and take some time off that and, and unplug. Uh, would be something I would add to what you yeah, said. Yeah, and I would say reading um, what I would call ennobling literature is a really good thing to do because when you see, we're so used to people being treated badly and people just being trashed and um, all of that kind of stuff in our culture that jumping back, because a lot of this, unfortunately, you have to jump back a couple of generations of authors, um, but reading books where people are kind to each other and looking out for each other's interests it can kind of like expand your horizons about um, how we treat people. Yeah, I, um, I had a professor in seminary who basically, I, I, so many of us, he was older than we were, but uh, he, one of the things he said was it's a lost art now of actually having close friendships with people you vehemently disagree with mm-hmm. on like major things. I think it's really true. Being able to appreciate the good and even the worst people and to be able to have a uh, a friendship with people that you have very strong I mean that that seems even more so and that was back in 2013 just imagine a lot a lot's changed right. since I think it's yeah, only absolutely. more the case absolutely. Um, yeah I think that's probably a good place to stop then I don't know okay. I mean anything else you would want to add to that or um, um, I would just say uh, Romans 12 and Matthew 5 through 7 are some great things to get read yeah. uh, just for some background on all of this well, I've seen a lot of folks, uh, I'm assuming, asking really good questions on the on the, the app. So how are we doing, Ian? All right, if everybody would take a minute to visit the website. There are many good questions on here, but if you have one you'd like to ask Bill, please do. Review the ones that are there, go to the ones you'd like. Also, there are several questions on here we've covered in past Theology on Taps. I will make an effort to get to all of the questions, but if you don't hear your question asked, feel free to approach either of the two gentlemen after the show. And we have a podcast where we upload these, and if we've talked about it in the past, I know there are actually people who listen to it, which shocks both of us. But um, yes. it's, it's who, like even in other countries sometimes. It's so. I don't know. It's kind of creepy. We're so thankful for you out there, but um, <laughs> no. So you can go back and listen to things that have been said before. All two of them out there. <laughs> All right, so again, just take a look at the questions if you want to ask another one. But we'll start with, if you're not supposed to judge in your heart, when do you know how to speak up slash out against rude behavior or actions of others? That's a good one. That is a great part of it. Um, I would say that part of what makes that such a good question is that the answer to it is it depends. Uh, 
there are some situations that you can speak into where you may be able to make a difference, where you may feel that God is calling you to speak into that situation and deal with the behavior. There may be others where if you try to intervene, um, all you're going to do is throw fuel on a fire that's happening. So I think you have to pray for discernment and wisdom right in the moment. Um, and also, I think the, the, the stronger your relationship with whoever is the, let's just say, the problem person in the situation, um, the stronger your relationship, I think the more you have the responsibility to speak. Um, the farther away you are relationship-wise, unless someone is being hurt by what's going on, um, you have less responsibility. I also think that one of the things going on in there is um, context, again, because Matthew 18 uh, is a great place uh, where Jesus talks about what to do when someone has done something that offends you. And what Jesus said, let's, let's just say, Ian, that you do something that made me really upset tonight when you came in the room. Um, it would not be appropriate for me to say, um, I just want to clue y'all in about what Ian did when we came in tonight and just see what you think about what he did to me. Um, that would be totally inappropriate. What Matthew 18 says is that if I have something against Ian, I need to go to him individually where it's just the two of us and I need to explain to him um, what it is that I'm upset about and that we have the opportunity to be reconciled. And I think we, we skip over that. We just want to go flame people on social media or whatever else. Yeah. That's probably enough. No, that's, uh, I appreciate the case by case, it depends kind of answer. Answering this in the abstract is like impossible, but a few things that I think we would try to get across, like you said, um, I think if there was like bullying that was happening, you alluded to it, like the def defending the person, perhaps if, if there was bullying in the presence of yourself, of somebody that is actually being uh, you know, bullied or something like that, you have an obligation to like stand up and say something. Um, generally, the, the ways that I've tried to do this in my own life with people, hopefully, like you said, the more you know them, the easier it is, but um, going to them afterwards one-on-one -on -one and bringing it up is far more likely for it to be received well than doing it there in the moment and then I guess unless there's like actual physical damage or really yeah. emotional harm being done like bullying or something like that. But it's a hard one, but I hope that's helpful. But it's an important question. Yeah. It's important to think through about that before you get in the situation. But I think what like you're talking about like, you know, very rarely is it helpful to tweet it out there to the world or like um, you know, making it public more often than not, that seems to be not the most helpful way to go about it. But, so we'll say that. My significant other is not a Christian. We started dating before I was baptized. Any practical advice? Yes. Yeah, that's hard. Um, that is a great question. Again, I think that's, that's a hard one to talk about. Um, I think that Scripture is pretty clear that you do not want to be unequally yoked. Um, so if you are looking toward marriage, um, that is something that uh, I think being not on the same page faith-wise uh, would be a real problem. Um, but I think there are different ways to approach that. I think uh, 
if your faith is important to you and you are in a significant relationship with someone who doesn't share that faith, then it's incumbent on you to talk about why your faith is important to try to um, share that experience and what you believe with the other person and see you know kind of where they are with it. Um, I think sometimes people are drawn into the faith in those kinds of situations. Um, but I also think you just you just have to be very careful because a relationship long term where you don't have the most important thing in common um, is in my experience pretty much doomed. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, that's not overstating it by any means, right? I think you just take the last theology on tap we did where Jesus says, you, it, I can't just be one option among many in your life or you know, just one important thing. I have to be the sun around which your universe you know, revolves, right? Like, I have to be the center of everything to be my disciple. And like, that's what I require. And, and, and if, to be a Christian, that's what, that's what we confess, right? That this is the single most important thing in our lives. And you know, there's, practically speaking, I mean, views of, of money, views of politics, views of, you know, religion oftentimes get lumped into some of the most important things. But I would say your view of Jesus Christ and your allegiance to him is the most important thing. And if any of those, like, are significantly off, it's just unwise, I would say. As hard as it is to probably hear this right now, um, missionary dating, if you've ever heard that term, like, I'm here to save this person's soul it is never something that ends well, right? And as hard as it is, only going to be harder down the line. And that doesn't mean you can't be kind and, and wish them well. But what you long for for success and marriage is to have uh, what you alluded to, being equally yoked, to be equally aligned on these most important things. Uh, because it, it's literally just saying, all right, we're going to go in two different directions and you're going to be tugged and eventually it's just going to pop, you know, so. Yeah, and I think one of the most helpful things to do is if you if you have friends that have been in relationships like that and then have moved out of that relationship into a one where um, they are with someone that shares their faith, <coughs> hearing them talk about the difference um, can be really helpful as well. And I'm going to butcher this quote, but I think it's worth saying because it's a hard thing given what we just said. Jesus never calls us to give us uh, to give up something that he in turn isn't going to give us back. Uh, you know, the, the desires of our heart. He changes often our hearts, but following in his ways is going to lead to more joy than we can concede yes. in the moment. So he doesn't call us to give up something that he's not going to meet a greater need for in our lives. Sticking with the topic of relationships, this is the top question by a wide margin. Although we've discussed it before, the question, what is the Christian stance on birth control in the context of marriage? Is it a sin like abortion? Okay, so let me just make sure I understand. Birth control within the context of in marriage. In the context of marriage. Yes, so I would say it is not a sin. Um, scripture doesn't really speak to that very specific um, aspect of the question. I do think that it is important in marriage that you think through with your spouse what your view of sex is. Because one of the things that you see in 
scripture and in creation is that there is a connection between sex and procreation and that there is um, a beautiful and miraculous thing about that. And so um, I, I wouldn't want to set down something that was like a rule here, but I think that part of it is a cognizance and being open and praying about what God's will for you is. Uh, it's interesting in the last C.S. Lewis class that we did on that to be a strength, one of the themes in there is there's a woman that's teetering on the edge of becoming a Christian, but she has made the decision with her husband that she's just not interested in children because she is all about her career. And so I think those kinds of absolute choices, that is problematic because I think that's putting you outside um, being led where the Holy Spirit might want to take you. You want to yeah. speak yeah. to that? Uh, how to, con- great how to condense tomes that have been written into a one-minute answer, right? I mean, um, there's again, it depends. There are some forms of birth control that are abortive in essence. And so the image of God, which you referred to, begins at the moment of conception according to Scripture. And so um, that is something that we have to, uh, basically, that's the very basis for all life being uh, worth preserving and having equal value, right? And so there's some forms of birth control that would be that way. There's others that are um, more legitimate, right, that, that don't kill a uh, embryonic uh, life, right? And so that distinction needs to be made, I think. Um, and also we need to look at, um, there is, there's wisdom, like you're saying, in, in some forms of birth control. Again, making absolute statements is really tough. And so there may be times where you, but it, you know, it, it would be wise to, to try and wait, right? Um, and yet you have to take into consideration, where's our cultural moment right now? I alluded to this earlier, the absolute, um, value is individual freedom and autonomy not having anything weigh you down and so any like even even something as good as like a life can be something that is seen as as doing that right and so uh, i think it's important to recognize where we are in our day and age that um yeah we need to actually uh, recognize that sometimes those are more um sinful reasons that we are trying to have our way the whole time, as opposed to living into what God's design is for us, which which may be to sacrifice, you know, whether it's a career or, or money or lifestyle or something like that. Uh, the goodness of children is something that can be very easily overlooked in our day, which values individual self-realization. And I just have to say, there's such, uh, it's not exactly children, but um, there is an idolization of Pat's going on in our culture right now. As you were trying to, to get me to go off on this. And there's this really awful commercial that's just come out lately from Milkbone. I don't know if you've seen it, but there's this very attractive woman, and there are four guys, and it's like um, sort of the bachelorette thing, and she's going to choose one of the guys, and she says, you know, I've really chosen the one that's going to be faithful and make my life worthwhile. And then the dog comes bounding out. And she gets the dog milk out and the music plays and they all live happily ever after. Um, there's something wrong with that. Um, I, I love a dog, don't get me wrong. I have had dogs, love dogs, love pets. Um, but there's something that is a little bit off about that. And um, on, this, on this whole 
question that was asked. There's a great book um, that addresses this in depth that is called Adam and Eve Before the Pill. I think it's After the Pill. After the Pill, sorry, yeah, um, by Mary Eberstadt. Um, that's really good um, and thoughtful about this. Was, we could go for a long time on that question. We could. Yeah. We could. It's a good question. I regularly judge the people I work with because their language and behavior, mostly not Christians. It causes me a lot of stress. Any advice? That is a great and an honest question. And I think that um, one of the things that is so difficult in that is that probably, and I don't know because I'm not actually in that situation, but I've been in situations like that and it's really offensive and just grates on me. Um, and what you don't want to do is like walk in carrying your Bible and say, y'all are offensive to me, would you quit talking like that? Um, that is not going to be helpful. Um, I do think it would be good to be prayerful for those folks. I also think it would be good to um, lean into trying to figure out which one of those people is the one that you might be able to develop some relationship with and then begin to talk about, you know, what do you feel like our work environment is like and maybe um, start getting at it that way. Um, but the flip side of it is there is somewhere in something that C.S. Lewis wrote, he talks about the fact that we shouldn't be surprised when people who are not Christians don't abide by any sort of Christian sense of morality. So in one way, it should make us sad for those people, um, not in a way of looking down on them, but, but just sad that that's where they are, they are living. But I think praying for them, um, looking for ways to lean into a relationship and lean into doing some positive things with them is a way to begin to address that. Yeah. Can you say the second half of the question one more time? Just, I thought it. I regularly judge the people I work with because their language and behavior, yeah. mostly non-Christians, it causes me lots of stress. Any advice? It, it said it causes me lots of stress? Lots of stress. Yeah, so that's what I'm wondering. That could refer to the fact that I know I'm judging people. That causes me stress, that I can't stop judging people. That could be a stressor. Or the fact that the people you talked about, like, okay, maybe the audience is a stressor. You know, the people you're working with are stressing you out. I'm going to take that as the fact that I know I keep judging people is stressing me out, and I don't know what to do about that. And I would say, in addition to what you said, that the whole Christian message is that there is no sin too bad that Jesus can't take, right? And so recognizing that we aren't saved by how good we are and our ability not to judge other people uh, that's really, really important. The Christian faith is the only one that actually has grace and unconditional merit, like or unconditional um, love as the foundation for our ethic, right? And that's absolutely key. Every other worldview is going to look at the world as basically there's good people, there's smart people, and then there's lessers. The Christian faith says, no, you've all blown it. You're saved utterly by grace, and you have no right to, to look over somebody else. Right. And I think that's yeah. that's the, the ground to be able to experience forgiveness yourself and to extend it also for, for others. Within that vein of grace, I keep averaging down on Bitcoin, assuming losing money on Bitcoin, and it keeps plummeting out of money and might have to sell the house. When should I tell my wife the bad news? 
Yeah. Some of these, we wonder if they're actually honest, and we have to treat them as honest questions. Um, th this is really important. Like, um, it, if you are investing in things, like that are unwise investments, you should you should stop doing that, right? I would probably say Bitcoin is one of those that's a little spurious, I guess. But you're at the point of having to sell the house. You need to be honest with your spouse. <laughs> Uh, and that's and then and then stop investing in Bitcoin. Well, I would say just as a, a general principle, whether this was a real question or not, a general question, a general principle in marriage, transparency in your finances is really important. Yeah. Um, if you start getting the idea that this is my stuff and this is her stuff, or anything like that, or I can do my thing and not tell my spouse. Um, that is never going to end well. So you're going to lose something way worse than a house yeah. at that point. Yeah. A family member has adopted a different faith. How do I go about the situation without scaring off this person? Yeah, great question. That is a great question. That is a really <laughs> difficult, difficult thing. And part of it is where we are as a culture. Um, some of y'all might remember a couple of years ago there was a song that came out that Adele sang called Hello It's Me and there's this really funny vignette that they did at the Thanksgiving dinner um, where everybody has come and you've got people that like have different faith or different political persuasion or have come out as um, whatever and it's so awkward that every time they start to talk she just stands up and starts singing Hello It's Me and I think a lot of times when we are confronted with these kinds of situations, um, that's kind of what we do. We just don't want to talk about it. We want to just avoid it. I think the very most important thing is to pray for that person, um, to pray that you would continue to love that person well in your family. Um, a lot of times this adopting of another faith can be a phase that people go through when they are discontent and struggling um, with things that you may have no idea about. So I think keeping the relationship is hugely important. Um, I think a part of the prayer is that you would pray that God would put people in their life who are not you, that they would respect who are Christians. Um, I think that can be an important prayer. But I think what you don't want to do is to try to argue them out of that. That's what we, I think a lot of us want to default to, particularly those of us like me who used to be lawyers. Um, and that is just, that is not good. That is not going to help anything. Especially right at the outset. Oftentimes, yeah. like you're saying, if it's just a phase, maybe, like it could be to, to get a rise out of you or something like that, that may be it. But like, let's assume that it's a sincere thing. I think the best thing you can do is, you know, it's this, what you believe and what you say and it's just as important as how you go about doing it, right? And so having the, the wisdom to actually indicate that your view of them and your love of them doesn't change. And yes, we define love not as just affirming whatever at all costs, but there is a, a truth that we love according to that as we talked about. But you, you can even say to them, my view of you, my love of you does not change, right? And I take interest in the things that move towards them, express care, concern, and curiosity mm -hmm. in a genuine way, and, and don't speak a lot. Like, you can ask questions and sit in it and listen and ask more questions. 
do that for quite some time and let your actions indicate that you do in fact still think just as highly of them as a person because they have the image of God and we're supposed to treat all people regardless of religion, race, whatever as as equal in the eyes of God. Yeah. So, great question. What should my posture towards other Christians be when we disagree on theology, worship practices, or how they interpret the Bible? Is that the same question? No. Okay. I'm not a good listener. All right. Can you repeat it? What should my posture be towards other Christians when we disagree on theology or worship? Other Christians. And yeah. how they interpret the Bible. Okay. Yeah. And I think part of it is that uh, with other Christians, we are all the more called to love them and to look for what we have in common. Um, I think. Christians that we are in close relationship with, if we believe that they are adopting a point of view that is um, absolutely clearly contrary to scripture, we have the responsibility to do a Matthew 18 kind of conversation with them. But I think when it's people who are in different denomination or something like that, um, that can be a different thing. And there's there's the old um, and I can't remember if this was Augustine or who this was, it said, in essentials unity, in non-essentials diversity, in all things charity. And I think there, there, is, there is some wisdom in that. Um, I think all too often Christians get into fights with each other about things that don't really matter that much, where all around us there's a world that is literally falling apart because they don't know the love of Jesus Christ. And so I think we have to be careful about keeping the main thing the main thing. Yeah, so going back, your answer to this, I'm going to actually pose another question to you because I think it was, I don't know if we ever got to this in one of them, but I know it was asked. The, the, it was Augustine who said that in essentials, uh, unity, and non-essentials, diversity, and uh, all things charity. Who decides what is what essential? The essentials are. Um, that's a really tough question. Um, I think that the the real hallmark of what the essentials are is scripture. And I think part of the way that you determine that is the whole witness and counsel of scripture and the understanding of the way that the church, not just the magisterium, not just the papacy, mm-hmm. but the whole Christian faith has understood what those passages meant over a long period of time. And I think that's how you know what the essentials are. That's a great answer. Um, and the, the reason I ask that is I, I do think that there are, there are probably entire denominations out there that would claim to be Christian but would, have, would go completely against what the entire Christian church through the centuries has understood the scriptures, how, how they've understood like things like the Apostles' Creed. And so um, we, we want to be charitable, but we do, and we shouldn't judge, right? We shouldn't just um, assume what somebody's going to think or say until we ask and, and find out what it is they actually believe individually. Um, but we, just at face value, if you hear somebody says, oh, I'm a Christian, uh, there, there's all throughout the New Testament people claiming to be Christians who are saying they're, they're actually false teachers too. So um, we have to be dis- innocent as um, doves and shrewd as serpents, Jesus says. Yeah. 
Great question. Yeah, that's these good. are all really good questions. These are good. A couple more. Do both people need to be on board for the biblical path of confrontation, going to the individual first, then others after, in order to lead to reconciliation? Um, I would say yes and no. Yeah, that's good. Uh, I think that you have, it's interesting the way that it's worded um, when you look at, because there's a similar passage in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, when you are going to give your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. Now that's an interesting one, that your brother has something against you. That you are to go to your brother and be reconciled with him first and then go and give your gift at the altar. And in Matthew 18, um, it is more if you have something against your brother then you are to go to him individually. Um, I think we always have, if you are a Christian, you always have the responsibility to be the one to take the initiative, to set up the time, to go. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to necessarily meet with success. Um, but it does mean that you have the obligation, the responsibility, um, to be the one to take the initiative and to try to go through those steps. You may not be able to reach reconciliation because if the other person is not willing to go there, you can't control the other person. But what you can do is control your own actions. And Jesus didn't say, do this only when you know the other person is going to be receptive. You know, he said, this is what you do in these situations. And that's not easy if you feel pretty confident that if you go do this, your doors are going to get blown in. But yeah, nevertheless, it's what Jesus calls us to do. Yeah. And it's what love and action looks like, mm -hmm. right? And so my, in thinking the way that question was carefully worded, uh, it, my, my answer to it, uh, you know, do both people need to be on board? It was like, no, all the way to the very end of the question where it said, in order to be reconciled. <laughs> because that doesn't depend like, on you alone. Reconciliation takes two people. Forgiveness is something that every single one of us are called regardless of what the other person does. That's a, a, a matter of our own hearts, not holding what they've done against them, revoking our own right to revenge. That's what forgiveness is. Uh, but the, as you said, and, and that's what love looks like, right? Is taking the initiative to go and to do those things. But the, so the process, it doesn't, you don't need both people for you to go through the process. The result is dependent upon both people, I would say. And on the Holy Spirit. Because I think what so often happens is we rationalize and say, I'm not going to do that because I know exactly what he's going to say to me if I do this. And it's just, I've been down that path and I want to do that. But that assumes that the Holy Spirit can't intervene. You never know what response you're going to get. And so um, we're just called to be obedient in that. One more. Of all the Abrahamic faiths, how do we know Christianity is the true one? Yeah. Judaism, Islam, Christianity, the three. Uh, I would say the way that we know that Christianity is the true one is because of Jesus. And I would say the evidence of who Jesus is and what Jesus did and what Jesus taught. And I think that if you start with Jesus in a fair examination of his life and what he taught and the evidence about him, um, it makes it clear 
that Christianity is the one of those that is fully true. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Islam and Judaism have very different views of Jesus, right? And so they can't all be true. <laughs> They're different. They say different things about this historical person, Jesus. Which one is actually the most accurate? Which one is true? And um, in addition to what you said, I would also say that the, the Christian faith is ultimately the only one that has the basis of grace that forms everything. Everything else is about, every other religion is about uh, basically doing enough things to appease God in your life. And Christianity says God loves the, his rebellious children who've run away and he's come down to seek after them by grace and he brings them back to himself. And that's seen in the person of Jesus Christ who was God in the flesh to come and give his life for the world who uh, weren't seeking him but in fact sought to kill him and yet he rose from the dead and forgave their sins. So um, radically different claims that have to be investigated. Yes. And if you are struggling with that question and want a resource to help you to investigate, uh, there's an absolutely terrific book uh, called Can We Trust the Gospels by a guy named Peter Williams, who's a genius um, at Cambridge University. Uh, it's a short book, um, very accessible, but also scholarly um, anchored um, that addresses that, that I think is really helpful. Well, thank you, Ian. Great job. Uh, thank you all so much for coming out. This has been a blast. Feel free to hang out. We're going to hang out for a while and chat. If you have any other questions, we'll be here. And I have one announcement. Um, some of y'all um, already know about this. Uh, we'll <coughs> First announcement is that we just started a new C.S. Lewis class on Wednesday nights uh, on Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, uh, which is not about divorce. <laughs> Um, it is more about what are the things that keep us from fully being able to love God, and um, it's a terrific book. So that will be um, 7 or 7.15 to 8 on Wednesday nights at the church right after the informal service and dinner. Um, love to have you come to that. Um, also, um, January 26th through 28th, there's going to be a major conference on C.S. Lewis here in Charleston at the Charleston Music Hall um, that will have, if you look for maybe the 10 greatest living scholars on C.S. Lewis in the world, um, we'll have five or six of them right here in Charleston. Um, it is amazing that we could actually get all these people to come on one stage. Um, so I would encourage you to mark those dates and clear your calendar because it's a once in a lifetime. Thing. It's going to be like they all could be keynote speakers. It's going to be January 26th to the 28th. Yeah, you're going to want to be there at the music hall. It's going to be great. So yeah, thank you so thank much. Thank you so much for coming. Appreciate it.